Welcome to the Nails and Hammers podcast. I am your host Kushal Shah. This podcast teaches new perspectives by walking through journeys and decision-making processes of different individuals. Our guest today is Peter Fishman, who is the CEO and co-founder of Mozart Data, which is the fastest and easiest way to get the data stack to consolidate, organize, and clean your data so that it's ready for analysis. Hey, Peter! Welcome to the Nails and Hammers podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, also, like before we start, uh, how was Thanksgiving? Did you do anything fun? Well, it was nice. I had my uh, my parents in town. Uh, my sister lives uh, only one or two blocks away, so it was really nice uh, family get together. But it was out in San Francisco. Nice. Uh, also, so let's let's rewind a bit. You studied economics from Duke and did your PhD uh, from Berkeley. So, what mo- motivated you to study economics, and what sort of career goals did you have back then? So I think I've actually been sort of a student of economics kind of my whole life. Um, a lot of folks basically find it a really rigorous way of, of thinking about the world. It's a framework for thinking about the world and decision-making more so than it is the study of sort of money moving around the economy. Um, I was technically studying economics, but in practice, I was really studying behavioral economics, which is the overlap of psychology and economics and how people make Kind of irrational decisions or decisions that deviate from the traditionally rational model of how humans are supposed to behave in economics. And, um, you know, often people that go into that field, um, they love data, they love psychology, they love human behavior and interaction and, and optimizing against incentives and maximization. Uh, but a lot of those folks also love studying kind of their own sort of foibles. So like for me, um, I'm somebody that's a little bit like time inconsistent. I have a very tough time, say, going to the gym or resisting eating a slice of cake. Uh, but uh, so that kind of inspires some of the, the study of that stuff. You know, economics, um, especially empirical uh, microeconomics or empirical uh, work, really was at um, a real special moment in time as data capabilities, you know, all over got better and better and better. So when I did my PhD, I was doing what I thought was cutting edge work um, with, a, with a giant data set that was about 500,000 observations. And obviously today, if you see a data set with 500,000 observations, you wonder, okay, like what hour was this collected from or whatever it was. So, uh, or sometimes for some companies, it's what second that was you know, collected from. So um, really uh, what is incredible is the, growth of um, you know, data capabilities. And, and, and I, I, I was in an interesting seat being sort of a microeconomist and then eventually transitioning that skill set, mm-hmm. applied microeconomics into, um, into technology. Mm-hmm. Nice. So like uh, was joining academia not an option uh, then? Well, like, like many data scientists, I'm a sort of failed academic. Uh, I, I actually did uh, go on the academic job market and had, had, had an opportunity to be a professor. But um, to be honest, when I went to Berkeley, I, I fell in love with the Bay Area and uh, ultimately really wanted to, uh, to stay here and be here. Uh, mm-hmm. And that typically meant transitioning to a technology company. Um, and what was really uh, amazing is that you know, back in the day, the options were pretty limited. You could go to say, uh, you know, a company that did search uh, and they would have giant data sets and then you could work with those data sets or other sort of big technology companies. Uh, but, but now 
everybody loves hiring people out of their their graduate programs because there's sort of like an adjacent skill set that you build up the ability to work with big data sets to wrangle data you know you really get a lot of reps cleaning data and uh taking that adjacent skill set and applying it to technology problems which are typically no different i mean a lot of again the work is a lot of clean data cleaning and really just conceptualizing how you want to you know shape and, and edit and, and make assumptions about your data and that's mm -hmm. that's a key part of the skill set and that's exactly what you're doing uh when you're doing sort of data work in in graduate school um so uh yes i'm 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 one of the um you know uh first folks that that was a uh you know a, a failed academic that transitioned to technology uh, but have been loving every minute of it and then it also really suits much better my my personal um approach to problem solving i i'm somebody that gets that geeks out a lot about sort of the setup and the and and solving the problem quickly and directionally correct um you know to make sort of a, an informed sort of bet or wager on kind of the direction I'd, I'd like the, the company or, or, or my team or the decision to go. Um, and a lot of what academic work in, in my field, which was social sciences, is all about actually making an insight that is science. And to yeah. be science, you wanna be really rigorous about like how you measure things and how accurate and how precise it is. And it's actually a, you know, a, a very high standard that people hold for mm -hmm. sort of a scientific, um, learning uh, in the social sciences and what that typically means is you spend not you know seconds getting the insight or even hours which is typically uh how you know how it works in technology but rather you know i spent you know the better part of six years which is how long or 10 years in college six years on my on my essentially phd um uh that's that's the type of like length a, a a great insight can can take to go through sort of the you know peer review process and being sort of beat up and and uh and sort of critiqued and and, and thought through and and that's the kind of problem that some people are crazy passionate about what i discovered uh sadly after i had sort of almost completed my phd was that i was much more passionate about getting to an answer really quickly mm -hmm. one that was i thought directionally right and that actually has a really great application in technology fair enough and also speaking of precision and accuracy one of the first things that you did after grad school was you worked with philadelphia eagles so tell, tell us more about it yeah, so uh in uh i think it was 2002 but i might be I might be off by a year. Uh, Moneyball came out, and Moneyball was uh, a story about the Oakland A's team. And uh, the Oakland A's had basically uh, used statistics to gain an advantage in a sort of in an unlevel playing field of, of baseball. That they were really pushing the the boundaries of how teams were using. Um, the stats to assess the players, that there have been traditional ways of essentially assessing the players. And through sort of a little bit more rigorous analysis, they figured out that that was the sort of wrong things to look at. And what that did was that enabled them an opportunity to sort of play on the off diagonal, which I like to call it. It's, it's, it's not just players that people think are good, that, that are good, but actually people that players that uh, people think are you know, mediocre or bad that are actually good based on the hitting stats. And um, and that became a very popular book uh, when I was in graduate school. Actually, a, a 
you know, a few of my graduate classmates actually dropped out uh, to go into the sports field, which was really starting to suck up really great minds uh, in the front offices. In fact, one of my, my graduate school classmates is actually the, the president of the San Francisco Giants. I'm a, I'm a huge Giants fan, but I'm an even bigger fan of his. Um, and, and just won the MLB Executive of the Year. Um, and um, I, 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 I had a, a very a sort of a, a much different role, but I was, I was in the front office of the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, and I was working on, of course, uh, the statistics associated with assessing, you know, football players and trying to find sort of, you know, hidden measures for, for what would tell you about essentially their skills. Nice. And so like, how did you get an entry into Philadelphia Eagles? And then how would you interact with players or coach or managers from there? Sure. So, uh, so I certainly wasn't on the field. So I want to make, you know, you know, that part, that part clear. I wasn't like out kicking field goals or throwing passes. Um, you know, I, it was funny in graduate school, what I didn't like was, um, you know, sort of being stuck in a room and, uh, crunching regressions and, and, and trying to find a relationship uh, and uh, between sort of like between variables in a, in a giant data set. And then what I discovered at the Eagles was I was doing the exact same thing, except the column names had changed. So, um, so, you know, I, you know, how I, how I got to the Eagles was, was actually, you know, uh, the story there is, 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 is one that I, I, I actually love telling. It's that I, I wrote physical letters to wow. the teams, um, I think every three months I was in graduate school, and I ended up actually getting interviews with the Browns and the Jets and the Jaguars, and, and eventually I got a job with the Eagles. Um, and uh, uh, you know what was what was incredible was um, that like you know that that was a way that people got jobs back then. They would send physical letters to the person of interest, the hiring manager. And, you know, you would sort of write a cover letter explaining how great you are. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, when kind of just that exact serendipitous moment, but that was a, actually a very long and lengthy pursuit for me. I, I ended up, you know, now it's, it's very common for, you know, teams in their, in their, in their front office to have somebody that's, that's sort yeah. of deep on the stat side. Um, but that used to be very few, uh, very few teams. Now, actually, the flip of that is when very few teams are actually using statisticians, that means there's greater advantages to be found and had. I think one of the big things is that a lot of, you know, say the findings of Moneyball from, from the early 2000s are now obsolete. All the front offices know this. This is not some like special secret. So mm -hmm. the advantages of say looking at on base percentage have largely been sort of incorporated into the market clearing price for those players. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, sometimes you actually want to run to the place that's maybe underutilizing uh, the data and, and mm -hmm. think of it as a, as an opportunity to take advantage of, of the data. And the more people that are looking at the data, the more sort of right tailed that the insight has to be. So, if, you know, you're trying to build an algorithm to say, beat the, the stock market. Uh, that's a pretty hard endeavor. There's a lot of great minds that have, you know, essentially, you know, that's true. pushed that pursuit. And now, but like, if you think about, you know, sort of in the mid 2000s, uh, doing that in sort of um, player evaluation or, or team strategy, uh, you know, in a, in a sport like baseball, actually a lot of those gains had been already uh, found. 
Um, but in, in basketball, they were just starting to come about. And then in, in, in football, they're very nascent. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of uh, how I ended up there. Um, it's always one of the jobs that, you know, I, I, I've had a career where I ping ponged around to different uh, companies and positions and some have been uh, interesting and wacky and some have been very traditional and large company. Um, but, uh, but at the very least, you know, a lot of these sort of stories, you know, the, the central theme has been always working in data, but the, um, the, uh, the you know, the, the, there's a string that ties it together, but all the context is always changing. But what's really remarkable to me is that though the context changes, the skill set that you bring doesn't change that much. You're trying to understand the data, understand the question that you need to ask. And these are these are the most important parts of sort of an analyst uh, toolbox. Fair enough. I mean, it, it's a bit orthogonal because a, a lot of people who would rather specialize in a domain and not change context, but then there's, there's a set of people who would rather specialize in the underlying technology or the platform or the skill set. So it, uh, there's like both kinds of people. Yeah. And there's many ways to advance a career, right? So one way of advancing a career is to go uh, narrow and super deep, right? So if you're truly, I mean, that's almost what graduate school is, right? So, um, you know, being an academic is all about going narrow and deep, which is to say you are piercing the world of knowledge, uh, you know, about a specific topic that you are a deep expert in and have a, a, you know, essentially a great familiarity with essentially um, the the other set of deep expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and that exists in technology, that is, exists in jobs. You know, we're always we're always happy to get the world, you know, if I'm if I'm having, say, like a, a major physical surgery, like I want like the world's best expert in not like the whole body, but like in whatever the exact part of the body that, you know, I actually once uh, broke my my pinky. And uh, disastrous little accident, but like, uh, you know, embarrassing. But um, I ended up sort of, you know, going to one of the best, not just like hand specialists, but pinky specialists. Oh, and, uh, and I think like that's kind of, uh, you know, obviously something, sometimes people value really deep, mm-hmm. deep, 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 deep domain skills. One of the things that I would challenge having been a manager of, uh, of, of many folks is that, um, that actually the best way essentially to get the most out of a team is to, um, is to basically deepen their domain knowledge. So put them in a singular domain, have them sort of make progress on it. And then, you know, they'll make progress at maybe diminishing rates, but like at the end of the day, they're continuing to make like progress and they're already always kind of, you know, getting better and better and better at their specific uh, field and craft. I actually think that that's kind of the opposite. So um, I think like in general, uh, I think you end up not just getting diminishing returns, but often negative returns when you're sort of on a project for a really, really, really extended amount of time. That uh, that basically you lose some of that fresh perspective or and excitement. And usually your best work is just really just a function of just how excited or motivated you are uh, to pursue it. So I think often I like to not just like switch context in my own career, but also to um, to have folks on my team, not just like, you know, work with an internal customer for forever, but actually to, to switch it up. And, you know, there's, again, sort of going back to the sports world, there's a really nice 
sort of uh, analogy that compares sort of two of the folks that are often called the GOAT. So, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Tiger Woods uh, and Roger Federer are basically considered, you know, two of the greatest to ever play their respective sports. And, you know, famously, like, you know, Tiger basically came out of the womb with a with a golf club. Uh, by the time he was, you know, uh, you know, able to stand up, he was basically swinging that golf club. Uh, you know, great, lots of books and documentaries on Tiger. Um, Roger Federer was actually kind of the opposite. He was playing a whole like wide array of sports, and you can almost see it in his sort of like like almost ballet moves on the court, just the way that he's able, you know, his his movements like flow as if he were playing, you know, soccer or whatever the, you know, whatever it is. And there's this like, you know, very often competing schools of thought, which is, do you want that sort of, you know, not that Roger doesn't have like a deep, deep, deep expertise in his field of tennis. In fact, you know, uh, he, he certainly does. But I think what it what is interesting is basically that, you know, I think I take much more of a, a Federer approach to it than a, than a Tiger approach. And mostly because... Uh, if you take too much of the tiger approach, I find actually that most, most folks end up actually experiencing more burnout more than they're gaining through sort of incremental knowledge. So, um, that, that's my own personal take on, on, on that side of it, which also sort of mirrors the career that I've chosen for myself, where it's yeah. often been sort of bouncing between different contexts of doing similar work. Uh, I mean, we, we might be digressing a bit, but like one, one, another point I just wanted to add was that I, I also noticed that a lot of people from Israel become good entrepreneurs because they have this diverse skill set, like going to the IDF and stuff. And then they develop not just like, you know, diving deep in tech and tech and stuff. So, so that's, that's interesting. I, I think that I, I hear often that that explains a lot of, a lot of it. I've had, uh, I've had a few managers that were former like, and, and, and professors that, that were former IDF um, that give a lot of credit to that experience. But uh, yeah, I, that's something that I, I certainly don't have anything to speak to there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, all right. So that's, that's coming back to your journey a bit. Um, I mean, so after after the Eagles experience, you worked in consulting for a couple of years, and then you entered this world of technology. So how did that happen? And then what sort of problems did you work at Playdom and subsequently at Disney? So, uh, you know, Playdom was a really um, incredible learning experience. I met my professional mentor there. Um, his name is Dave. He, uh, he taught me a lot about how to think about these problems, but we were doing Real, I would describe it as the most cutting edge work of my career. So um, back in the day, Facebook was a very like open platform that was the wild, wild west. Um, and uh, game developers realized they could turn the Facebook platform into a real business and had, you know, millions or even billions of eyeballs to essentially uh, to feed. And, you know, Facebook welcomed the sort of the active persons and they basically wanted uh, you know to keep their users active so they could grow essentially the platform to be billions of users uh, and these gaming companies uh, really took off during that like that special time now now Facebook ultimately decided to clean up the feed if you remember that time almost every every feed looked like oh this is what I planted on my farm today oh I watered you know I watered your uh, you know, your corn and, you know, then you, you know, harvested, uh, you know, my sunflowers. And, you know, I think like, um, you know, these, these sort of virtual games, they were kind of silly on paper, a lot of times a waste of time. Uh, but actually it was really one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever had. It was the most 
intellectually interesting. We had 500 million um, basically unique, uh, when I was there, even just a unique, uh, you know, essentially player game. So like you could get to statistical significance in like no time. So you could run experiments where you'd, you know, famously test condition A versus condition B. And, you know, a lot of times when I was in graduate school, I would run economic experiments and, you know, you'd, you'd invite students into a lab and then they would, you know, answer questionnaires. And, and then, you know, if you could, if you could run 20 in an afternoon, it might blow your entire research stipend. And similarly, it would, you know, take a full day. Um, I was, you know, running experiments on, you know, hundreds of millions. Now these weren't, uh, these weren't harmful experiments. They were sort of, you know, testing, okay, like what if, you know, what if the, you know, what if the, you know, rose is red versus white versus pink, you know, like what, you know, what, which gets players back the most. So um, I think this is kind of something that I found really, really interesting. And, and, and it was actually the first time that I had someone effectively doing the data engineering for me. So when you're in graduate school, you're doing all of the, you're doing all of the collection, you're doing all of the cleaning, you're doing all of the management, you're doing all of the sort of um, documenting, and you know it's a it's a whole process. Here I had an incredible data engineering team that I got to work with, and my job was to tease out the insights for uh, for the the GMs of the the games, and. Um, that was awesome. I mean, that was that's that's how I was able to uh, really learn sort of the power of harnessing a bunch of data in a central place. And uh, I had a you know obviously a great set of colleagues. One of them currently works with me at Mozart Data, and um, you know I think that that was a, that was a really incredibly special experience. And then that that company did get acquired by Disney almost at the peak of the frenzy around social gaming. Um, and I was at Disney for a brief while before sort of transitioning and getting, getting back into the startup world. And uh, I mean, so subsequently after Disney, getting the exposure to startup world, you worked at Yammer, Microsoft, Opendoor and, and E. So uh, in a sense, how did, how did the world of behavioral economics converge with the world of technology? Or was yes. it just playing with data? So, so, so first of all, you know, you, you hit on some B2B SaaS companies. So B2B SaaS companies were sort of like the last frontier in the same way that like football was the last frontier of like, you know, you had baseball, which, you know, had these sort of one-off interactions. And as a result, there's a very natural way that like statistics, you know, statistics had always been part, a big part of the baseball sort of understanding of, of the players. Uh, and uh, you know, and basically, uh, you, you know, that, that was, that was very quickly kind of tackled by statisticians. Then came basketball and, you know, there's all the, you know, these stat heads that found their way to basketball that were really in love with some of the dynamics of the game and the strategy of the game. And they were able to sort of figure out ways to sort of leverage kind of um, uh, statistics to essentially optimize both of how they selected players and, and built teams and organizations, but also how they played on the court. Um, mm -hmm. Football was sort of the last, the is still sort of the last frontier of, of the three sort of major American sports. And the, the, the same is true sort of a B2B SaaS, because if you think about it in, in consumer, in consumer worlds, or, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, I, I worked in games that had, you know, millions or even tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of users you got to something really meaningful. So if you ran two conditions, if you ran an A-B test, you would instantly 
kind of, and you had a good North Star metric, something that told you, you know, you know, whether, you know, condition A or B was better, it's a pretty simple sort of difference in means to actually figure out which one is the winner. When you're running an, an experiment or trying to draw inference in a world where you have a handful of customers or a single customer, I mean, it, it just basic statistics, which is to say, when you, you know, when you have a single customer, when you have like a distribution that doesn't look like where, you know, where maybe a, a vast majority of your money comes from uh, to the way that software was used. So SaaS was sort of like almost in some sense, um, the place where you didn't see a lot of data being analyzed. Now today, that's certainly not true. Um, what ultimately happened was a number of people ended up in this field and, and some SaaS companies really wanted to develop like consumer companies. They wanted to think in the same exact way. They treated, you know, though the sale was typically still to the CIO, mm -hmm. the sale was becoming more bottoms up. Even if, even if um, the ultimate decider was at the top of the food chain, the pressure would sort of bubble up from the bottom. And with that transition of sort of the B2B market looking a little bit more bottom up, what you found was that data started playing a bigger and bigger role because it ended up actually contributing to revenue in a way that it hadn't in a world of top-down, you know, CIO decision-making. So the reason that like a lot of SaaS companies now have that is that there were a few sort of very forward-thinking SaaS companies that, that really brought sort of a consumer approach uh, to B2B. Um, but then on top of it, um, those folks have gone on to like, you know, different careers. I, I, I left Yammer to go to Zenefits. At Zenefits, we had a great team that did very similar things that we did at Yammer. Um, today, you know, I work at Mozart Data. It's a B2B SaaS program, uh, company. And we essentially uh, you know, work with other B2B SaaS companies. So it's, it's that sort of, uh, the way it sort of uh, pollinates across the the technology ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, a, a thought just came to me, which is like when talking of B2B enterprises, do natural experiments take precedence over A-B tests or like still uh, people do A-B tests? So that's actually where like the economics background comes in, I think in a nice way. So um, one of the things that, you know, was really one of my favorite parts of grad school were the seminars. And in the seminars, you know, somebody would find a relationship between two variables and essentially, you know, often argue or assign causality through, through a variety of mechanisms. Maybe it was a statistical technique that was supposed to approximate an experiment and a few folks have won Nobel prizes. On, in fact, the most recent Nobel prize in, in economics, um, uh, you know, two of my former professors actually ended up winning, um, but it was, it was about sort of taking natural experiments and, and sort of taking, taking, because when, in situations where you can't, you know, tell somebody, okay, you're now going to go, you know, work at this wage for this guy, you know, it's like, well, how do you exploit sort of natural variation? Yep. So a lot of that thinking ended up being really important uh, in the, in the B2B space, because mm -hmm. sometimes you can't run an experiment because you can't run these sort of beautiful like correct AB tests. Yeah. And, um, and similarly, you don't want to just, uh, you know, mistake some sort of correlated relationship to be a company strategy. A lot of times, you know, folks will, you know, say, okay, well, what are my most successful users doing in their first day? And let's amp up 
kind of the prevalence of 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 that thing and that's actually like uh you know aside from flawed logic it, it can it can often lead companies down a really terrible rabbit hole mm -hmm. so um so i think having that sort of rigorous thinking about causality was a big part uh, of it and of course like yes when businesses run experiments or natural experiments uh, I think that there's something really beautiful that I, I, had, I, I got invited to give a talk once, but the rules of the talk were to comment on one of your favorite sort of, uh, tech findings that was not at a company that you worked at. It was to go read, um, other things that were happening. And I saw a really great paper that the team at Uber did on their, um, on their surge pricing and, uh, and basically they had exploited a natural, not only, you know, you know, they, they realized that sort of, you know, that, that sort of experimental thinking, they exploited a natural experiment, which was on New Year's Eve, uh, their surge algo, you know, had a, had a bug in it and, and essentially had an issue for about an hour. Oh. And they, they essentially took that as a natural experiment on, you know, having it versus not. And you know that that's the type of thinking that I think is is really beautiful when you're able to sort of there you have probably the observations that you can actually run this as as a clean experiment. But it's even better when you know you see really clever thinking to leverage, you know, natural experiments in the business context. And uh, along with your career in technology, uh, one of the things that you did was you started a hot sauce company. So uh, how did that happen? How did you scale it? Market it? It, it featured in a couple of news channels and stuff. So like, can you share a, a, a bit of a story of that? Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it's funny. This is my second entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, my first was a hot sauce company with actually my, my current co-founder. So my co-founder and I, um, I previously about 15 years ago, started a hot sauce company. It was called bacon hot sauce. It was the world's first bacon flavored hot sauce. We basically had a moment of uh, sort of epiphany where we said, Oh my God, the, the one thing the world needs the combination of bacon and hot sauce together. So that'd be super easy. Uh, we were sort of having eggs one morning and this was some, something that was really abundantly clear to us. And neither of us had a food background. We both had technology backgrounds, but we both wanted to make it happen. So, uh, so, you know, I think we had a, a really great side passion project that we pursued to its fullest. And actually um, we were leveraging pretty nascent platforms at the time uh, really to advance our business. So, you know, if you want to get into the food game or you know, a, lo a lot of games that are highly competitive, um, it's challenging. It's truly, I mean, especially as an outsider, it's one thing if you know you have all these industry connections or a variety of things, but as an outsider, it's actually very challenging. So you typically have to find a new channel for distribution. Mm -hmm. We found two new channels for distribution, which was one of the secrets to the, the company lasting for so long. Um, and one of those channels was, was Shopify. So we were building basically uh, D2C offering and wanted to make that crazy easy and low lift. And, and, and we were leveraging, you know, a, a, we'll call it a nascent platform, Shopify. Uh, and it was at the time. And then the other one was Facebook. Uh, not that like, you know, certainly, you know, if any of your listeners haven't heard of Shopify or Facebook, uh, they're probably lying. Uh, but like at the time that those were 
you know, sort of doing advertisements on, on, on Facebook was, was, was really sort of clever, but it had the same sort of targeting power without the competition from so many other brands. So, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of one of the ways that the, the, you know, the business sort of started as a joke, sort of for fun, uh, as a side project, but really took off partially because of, uh, how great the concept was. And then, and, and secondly, that we were able to leverage these sort of new platforms and skate in hindsight to where the puck was going. But we also had a really strong belief about both the D2C market and also about really the power of targeting on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, selling the product is one thing, but then making it is another ball game altogether. So like, how did you like make the hot sauce? So I, I tell you that like we had like a cauldron in, in the back of my apartment, that'd be a lie. Uh, so we used a, a co-packer. So basically you provide a commercial recipe and, uh, and, you know, there are food production facilities that, you know, uh, that are able to do it. And I, I learned all about all these things, which is I learned about FDA panels and I learned about, uh, labels and I learned about, um, you know, standard five ounce woozies. And I, I learned about all the things that, you know, go into making a hot sauce, which is, you know, mostly water, right? So it's it's water, peppers. You know, ours has vinegar in it, and um, and then some other ingredients. But but basically, you're talking about moving you know water from some facility and then distributing it all across the country. And it's a it's a very it's a very big challenge. And um, you know, we were very passionate about. I I, I like to say like um, a lot of things in technology have these like crazy power distributions where like the first is always like way out ahead of the second. Uh, so, you know, an example tends to be in language, like the first most popular word, you know, is like always like way, way, way more popular than the second, which is like way, way, way more popular than the third. I like to consider myself like the first power, power, power user of, of, of the hot sauce. So I was, I was always the world's biggest, you know, consumer of that hot sauce, still, still am today. Uh, and then uh, you mentioned that that was your first entrepreneurial venture now, and Mozart is your second one. So how did the, I mean, what sort of initial validation did you have and what made you start Mozart? So it's a little bit opportunistic, which is to say that I wanted to work with Dan, uh, who was my co-founder from the hot sauce company and is my co-founder today. Um, and, you know, Dan and I have been friends for over 20 years. Um, Dan is incredibly talented. I hope he would say the same about me. And, uh, and this was an opportunity for us to work together. And we, we kind of want to think about, again, the overlap of our skills. So on, on one level, the overlap of our skills is hot sauce, but, but more accurately, the overlap of our valuable skills looks like data. So Dan uh, had been working mostly as a software engineer, backend engineer, and data engineer. And I had been working mostly in data analytics, data science. Uh, and under that intersection looked like building sort of data pipelines, uh, more broadly. So, so that's kind of how the idea came about. You sort of have to scratch your own itch. You have to think about what are the tools that I really love or, or I've basically forced us to invest in, 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 in terms of people hours. I think, you know, you hire a team and then, you know, you keep them busy. And what were the things that you were investing that could just be services that should be built once centrally? And a lot of sort of the best data tools today look exactly like that. They look like, um, they look like I was at great company X, uh, and in order to make great company X move just a little bit faster, we invested a lot of, um, expensive engineering resources towards the following tooling. 
And it's like, this actually, you know, proved to be worth it. And mm-hmm. now I'm going to go build, you know, maybe that's, an open, oh, maybe, maybe that's open source and it's being used by the world. And maybe I'm going to, you know, build a company around it, or maybe I'm going to go, you know, build my own version of it or something like that. So um, that's what a lot of the great data tools today look like, you know, for, for Dan and myself, we both built something very, very, very similar to Mozart, very, uh, you know, essentially key in the sort of evolution and inspiration for the tool. Um, and it was critical to how we did work, you know, transforming and cleaning data, um, extracting and loading data into a central warehouse. Uh, this is how data teams work. And we thought that we were practicing data the right way. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted to make the same tools and technology that were available to us at late stage startups, public companies. Uh, we wanted to make that available to early stage companies. So that's kind of how we ended up um, doing Mozart. So, and like, what was the uh, original product? What did it look like? And then how did you scale it to what is it today? It looks pretty similar in the sense of, um, now that said, there are, there are a number of um, incredible changes that have happened over the last 18 months. So we're a COVID company. We got started in COVID. And another reason that Dan and I wanted to work together is during COVID, um, the new bar for working together had become you know, only interacting. You know, Dan and I actually, in, in founding the company, never actually worked in the same room oh. until over a year after the We didn't even celebrate the one-year anniversary together. So um, we actually never worked in the same room until over a year after <laughs> we started the company. And, uh, and that was true for the whole team. And that's kind of uh, crazy. And what that meant, again, your bar for who you work with, you know, had to change. You know, I think we, we had a lot of our early employees have been folks that we had worked with in the past that the beats, mm-hmm. you know, you could really figure out um, really quickly. The early product, um, I think, you know, we, you know, Dan and I early on, early in our journey ended up uh, going to Y Combinator. So that, that tends to be the Silicon Valley cheat sheet of like how to get going really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of like Y Combinator like preaches about obviously, you know, make stuff people want, but, but above that it's do things that don't scale, um, which is, you know, I think a lot of what our offering was, was helping teams centralize their data and do something useful with that. And on the one hand, that's productized in our product and it works perfectly smoothly and well. On the other hand, it always helps to have a helping hand and have some data engineering assistance and a push in the back. And a lot of what the early product looked like is what today's product looks like, but with some additional pushes in the back from myself and Dan. And that's kind of, I, I think the core sort of philosophy is unchanged. Like uh, a big part of what the tool is, is it centralizes data and um, it, it provides essentially a common place to clean and come up with your essentially sources of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the how you do that changes, the, the workflows, the UX, the, um, the additional capabilities and features, the requests that, you know, basically larger companies have as the companies, you know, data capabilities and, and fluency scales, how do you keep up with their needs and the, the needs of a, you know, a 10 person data team don't look like the needs of a zero person or negative one person data team. 
Yeah. And that's kind of the tricky like challenge, which is, you know, you have design partners that are sort of scaling their data fluency, using data in more and more ways and using more and more data. And that's really great. But then the flip is you also have to make it, the whole thesis was what's a really easy onboarding that's not gonna require a data engineering. See, 10 years ago, when you would start a team, it would be like, you'd have to hire, you know, a me, a Dan, spend a lot of money on, you know, Amazon or some similar technology. And then, then if you're lucky, you could get up and running if you had the data and if you had that essentially the good versions of, of, of me and Dan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that'd be, if you get away with doing it with one, I mean, you might be looking at bills, you know, north of five to $10 million just to get started. Um, today it's, you know, $6 and a credit card. And, um, and I think like that's an incredible change in the data landscape. And now seeing how that plays out um, with not just our tool, but with, with many tools is, is, is very interesting. And it's, it's one that's really like refreshing. It's, it, it, basically, um, it basically means that really a lot of other companies can, you know, sort of that long tail can start, or even not even the long tail, but like essentially a new set of companies can really be exposed to the benefits of using data. I mean, I do get the gist that you, you saw similar problems in your career that, hey, I mean, you had to wrangle data and you had to make decisions out of it. But as a company, uh, it, it's a bit, I mean, how do you convince companies to, you know, share their data with you or maybe share their pipelines with you? And uh, how did you partner with them? So, uh, you know, that, that's always a conversation, right? So, you know, there, there's, there's the class plan. I think it's like nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM or whatever the equivalent is. Um, and, you know, under the hood, uh, we are essentially providing a managed Snowflake data warehouse. So um, most companies have, um, through a combination of docs and uh, Snowflake security pages, have a lot of confidence in, in you and, and Snowflake basically scales to the biggest companies in the world. Um, uh, so have a lot of confidence uh, in that sort of underlying technology. Uh, but in general, yes, it's an exercise in trust, um, you know, and, and, and we have a variety of, uh, you know, security uh, checkboxes and, and also security practices that are really key to what we do. But ultimately, you know, how you get a company to trust you with one of their most precious assets, if not their most precious asset, their data, um, is, is a complex problem. It's, it's how do you get anybody to trust you with, you know, some of the most important things in your life, you know, and, and that is, it starts with, you know, one, a track record of doing it. And then two, you know, building off of that track record to essentially expand into a greater track record, but also having the sort of um, the chops to back it up when somebody asks uh, a real question about kind of um, what, you know, what you're, what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, uh, working with Dan is one thing or someone, Dan is someone that he knew for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And in terms of hiring people and in terms of like uh, thinking of questions like culture and cultural fit, how are you thinking of those aspects? Yeah. So Dan and I obviously are trying to craft a culture at Mozart that is what we want. I think that's, that's a nice part about, I think people talk about the founder journey a lot and there's a number of really, really hard parts in it. And like, mentally difficult parts and then you know and then 
most often companies fail. So that part is maybe not financially rewarding. Sometimes the far right tail are massive successes. So you obviously overhear about those and people think of it as well, you know, if you really hit it, you hit it. And, uh, but really the thing that I think is special about the founder journey is that you have a massively disproportionate say in what the culture is. Not because, you know, today, you know, we're a team of 20. So I don't get, I probably get more than one twentieth of a vote. I probably get more than 5% of the vote about what our culture is, but, but not really, not too much more. This is not a top-down dictatorship. This is like, we have a company culture that and all company cultures sort of arise organically from essentially the comp from from everybody at the company. Um, but what I did have was a massively disproportionate uh, say in who we hired as our first employee and who we hired as our second employee. And those people are probably going to be the ones that are most likely to jump on board with the culture that Dan and I wanted. So Dan and I have been, you know, ICs and, and managers at at a lot of late stage tech companies. So a lot of sort of concepts around. Uh, servant leadership and a lot of concepts around, um, you know, sort of the way that information is shared across the company in terms of, you know, uh, transparency and in terms of, um, in terms of sort of um, doing things that are sort of now very commonplace, which is some employee best employee first practices around sort of compensation in in in, in stock. I think like these are things that, you know, we certainly empathize with uh, having been uh, ICs and managers very recently. Um, so that was really, really important to sort of us as, as starting our culture, but it's, it really stems a lot out of our personalities. You know, um, you know, I'm, so, you know, Dan is somebody that likes to do things to its fullest. I'm somebody who likes to be very 80, 20. So we have these sort of two things that are, you know, uh, you know, essentially pulling on one another. And if you think about product development, those two things are exactly what should be pulling uh, against one another. I'm somebody that like very reluctantly likes to, to spend money. Dan's not a spendthrift, but, you know, I think like we have sort of an, you know, an ownership mentality that everybody at the company embraces. Um, so I think that these are the things that, you know, as part of the founder journey, the, the biggest hidden benefit is that you get such um, a, you know, a, a fingerprint on the, the company culture. So when I think about, when I think about building it, it's about, you know, obviously hiring great people. How do you hire great people? You have to treat it like a job. I think, you know, even I'm certainly guilty of this, but most people just kind of want to passively, you know, stand there and just like be like a magnet. And, and, you know, when you've achieved maybe the greatness that is some of the larger tech companies and you're, you're, you know, paying at not just, uh, high part of the market, but at the absolute top of the market, you know, maybe that, that comes natural, but beyond that, you have to really earn it. So people have to believe that you're as excited about your company as, uh, as, as you claim. And then, and, and, and that's, you know, that, you know, it depends on what you're doing. I think some people, you know, a lot of times in the consumer space, it's a little bit of an easier sell. It's like maybe a really exciting product or, you know, it's like, like when I worked, you know, at the Eagles or in, in video games, or I, I most recently was in cannabis. All, all of those fields have people that are crazy passionate about those things. And they just, they're there because it's a magnet. When you work in sort of uh, B2B, it's a little bit more of a stretch, but I think I've often found, and the reason that I that I've wanted to bounce more towards the B two B space is the context matters, but really the problem solving, the people, the 
the the challenges that you're facing and overcoming that's actually what drives your day-to-day happiness more so than the sort of broader context Mm -hmm. so i'm looking for people that kind of have that same sort of passion for the work and and then you know that essentially that pays you know it's like a copy of a copy of a copy well how do you start from a place where you're really happy about and and often you know i think some of our early hires are frankly better than myself and dan they're just you know on 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 all these levels so um you know that's kind of how you know the, the best companies you always hear about you know, their, their, their early team is being legendary. And then those folks become legends at the next company. And, um, and that's, be, you know, it's, it's not survivorship bias. This is actually, this, sorry, this, this maybe is survivorship bias. It's like, basically the reason that, that, that team was so good was because that team was so good. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, also, let, let's switch gears a bit and talk about, uh, know more about Peter as a person. So you have had a breadth of career, like, uh, I mean, from doing grad school to working at a bunch of startups and then now having your own company. So how do you stay at the top of your game? Well, I, I, I want to brag that I think I've got a lot of energy. You know, Dan and I started this company in our, in our 40s and uh, going through Y Combinator uh, in, in your 40s is a very different prospect than going through it as, you know, in, in, in your 20s. And um but I think we we're able to hang. So, uh, you know, I think the thing that keeps me at the top of my game is some, sometimes it's some of the context switching, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think it, it really is about um, what gives you energy, right? If you can, uh, there's cliches that are true, which is basically, if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. And, um, you know, I've worked, you know, really short weeks at, at some companies that felt like they were forever. And I used to, you know, and I've worked hundred hour weeks that felt like they were, they went by in no time. So I think um, what generally keeps me at the top of my game is, 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 is a true competitive spirit. I think, I think a lot of folks that, I think they say that the, the biggest indicator of success is not say like IQ or EQ, but it's just like grit. Um, and you know, grit to me is tightly coupled or very correlated with competitiveness. And, um, and I think that that's something that, um, certainly, you know, for inspire, whether I'm playing, a you know, a small stakes poker game or whether I'm playing, uh, you know, it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter. Some sort of game with some of my friends, I, I have that like spirit. Hopefully it doesn't, you know, hopefully it doesn't go to the ugly side of that, but, um, I think that that's also been translated into my career and in, in terms of just my own, my own personal growth. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do to unwind? Uh, well, I, I, I still am a, a huge sports fan. I, I still do a lot of um, uh, sports, sports watching, sports following, uh, trying to keep up on essentially the latest in, in, in sports analytics. And then also, um, so I'm, I, you know, I, that's that's generally. But I, I play also a lot of games. I like. Uh, I think I mentioned poker, but I like poker and bridge and uh, and chess and 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 a few others of the sort of uh, like standard sort of game thinking uh, varieties. So I, those are kind of two of my my own ones. I'm also um, I also live in San Francisco, so it's one of uh, the great cities. There's a lot of things going on, even even. With COVID, um, it's still a very 
you know, busy city. I, I, I live across the street from effectively the Warriors and the Giants. So I like to go to a lot of games. Um, but, but beyond that, it's a great cultural city. And, uh, you know, I, I have a great time. Mm-hmm. And with a, with a breadth of career and with a lot of context, which is you might have to learn and unlearn a lot of things. So how do you do so? Well, actually, you know, I, I don't think you want to unlearn too many things. So you want to unlearn bad habits, but um, actually like sometimes some of the really uh, nuanced things about one industry end up playing uh, sort of, you can, you can mirror it or see something analogous. So I went from real estate to cannabis and <clears throat> these two things are, are, are very unrelated, but even in cannabis, there's, there's questions around how do you maximize the real estate of a commercial store? Um, how do you, you know, think about essentially maximizing the value of a space? And that's typically one of the big questions in real estate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's not, the Venn diagram never looks like concentric circles, but it actually never looks like it's, it never looks that they're, they're all like uh, disjoint. They, yeah. they're, the Venn diagram always will surprise you how much the, the center is, um, how, how, how much, obviously like all the data questions overlap. The strategies there end up being very similar, which has been some of the theme of my career, but also the context of thinking about how to maximize, you know, um, a space, a salary cap, uh, you know, a, a set of players on Facebook, all of these things end up sort of being very adjacent to one another and some of the sort of uh, sort of almost best practices. I think one of the things about my thesis was that psychology tends to be universal. Yeah. That, um, that these sort of biases, not everybody suffers from them. So yeah. some people are, uh, you know, my, my advisor had a, had a co-author and it's sort of almost like me and Dan where mm-hmm. the co-author like, you know, wakes up every day at the, at the correct time. Like, you know, if, if they've got a homework assignment, they do it, you know, spaced out equally over, you know, those, you know, whatever the, the time is. Um, whereas my advisor, of course, like myself was always, you know, getting everything done at the exact last minute. Yeah. And uh, so, so the, just because the bias is universal, it doesn't mean that it applies universally. So it's, it's that um, I think a lot of the, the human sort of uh, frailties or, 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 or beautifulness is, is sort of that commonality. And then basically that human psychology plays into a lot of decision-making that is very much there across industries, even when they seem so different. Mm-hmm. And lastly, and otherwise you would want to give to a 20 year old Peter. Yeah. So uh, the, the cliches tend to be like, don't worry, it turns out okay. Um, but I do think uh, I, I, I look back on myself in high school and college, and I sought sort of the, the path. And, you know, in, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, there was always like, you know, you study hard, you learn thing X, you prove that you've learned it, then you get admitted to next fancy prestigious thing. Maybe that's a school. Then yeah. from that school, you get into another prestigious school. And then from that prestigious school, you get into a fancy job. And with that job, if you do good, you raise up the ranks and then you get into the next rank. And then you get, in, then two years later, you get into the next rank and then the next rank. And then you've lived a great life and you look at like a, a fancy set of things you own. That's not how life works. And I think, um, I think it's really important to understand that, um, that there is something nice um, about nonlinear progress. 
And, you know, it's, it's to appreciate kind of the look back. We had a, we had a value at ease called enjoy the moment, which is really about actually celebrating success, which is often very hard at mm-hmm. startups. You sort of blink and you're at a very different point than you were, um, you know, six months ago, three months ago, even. Um, but, but it's very hard to see it because the progress is sort of more gradual um, and, then, and then sudden. So I think, um, I, I think the best advice would be, you know, em- embrace nonlinear progress. Um, and also yeah, the things that mattered so much to me, the little, the little accolades. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously like, I love the fact that I, I strive so hard to, to get them, but um, they're certainly not gonna make or break any, any part of you. So I think it's all about like, learning and growth more so than the accolades, even though that it's that strive for it that, that kind of brought on so much of the adventure. Awesome. Uh, so, I mean, that's the end of the podcast, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. And it was yeah. a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode with Peter. Please subscribe to Nails and Hammers on the platform of your choice.